Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46 for our scripture reading. Today we're going to read chapter 46 through 47. Chapter 46 through 47. We're coming uh, really close to Our scripture reading in Genesis will coincide with our conclusion on the book of Daniel. If it does, just know I didn't plan it. <laughs> it just is going to be that way, maybe. So, um, Genesis chapter 46, verse 1. Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices. To the God of his father Isaac. That night God spoke to Israel in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he said, I am the God, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back. Joseph will close your eyes when you die. Jacob left Beersheba. The sons of Israel took their father Jacob in the wagons Pharaoh had sent to carry him, along with their dependents and wives. They also took their cattle and possessions they had acquired in the land of Canaan. Then Jacob and all his offspring with him came to Egypt. His sons and grandsons his daughters and granddaughters, indeed all his offspring, he brought down with him to Egypt. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Jacob and his sons. Jacob's firstborn, Reuben. Reuben's sons, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. Simeon's sons, Jemuel, Jamin, and Shaol, the son of a Canaanite woman. Levi's sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merahri. Judah's sons, Ber, Onan, Shelah, uh, Perez, and Zerah, but, uh, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. Issachar's sons, Tola, Puva, Shub, Hebron. Zebulun's sons, Sered, Elon, and Jael. These were Leah's sons born to Jacob in Padan Aram, as well as his daughter Dinah. The total number of persons, 33. Gad's sons, Zephinon, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Aroidi, and Areli. Asher's sons, Imna, Zephon, 
Serah. Uriah's sons were Heber and Malkiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, who Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore that she bore to Jacob sixteen persons. The sons of Jacob's wife Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph in the land of Egypt. They were born to him by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, a priest at On. Benjamin's sons, Ashbel, Girah, Naaman, Ahai, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Arb. These were Rachel's sons who were born to Jacob, 14 persons. Dan's son, Hushim, Naphtali's sons, Jaziel, Guni, Jazer, and Shilin. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel. She bore to Jacob seven persons. The total number of persons belonging to Jacob, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, who came to Egypt, 66. And Joseph's sons who were born to him in Egypt, two persons, all those of Jacob's household who came to Egypt, 70 persons. Now Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to prepare for his arrival in Goshen. When they came to the land of Goshen, Joseph hitched the horses to his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. Joseph presented himself to him, threw his arms around him, and wept for a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am ready to die now because I have seen your face and you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's family, I will go up and inform Pharaoh, telling him, My brothers and my father's family who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They have raised livestock. They have brought their flocks and herds and all they have. When Pharaoh addresses you and asks, what is your occupation? You are to say, your servants, both we and our ancestors, have raised livestock from our youth until now. Then you will be allowed to settle in the land of Goshen, since all shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. So Joseph went and informed Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all come out in the land. He took five of his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked his brothers, what is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants, both we and our ancestors, are shepherds. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to stay in the land for a while because there is no grazing land for your servant sheep, since the famine in the land of Canaan has been severe. So now, please let your servants settle in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, now that your father and your brothers have come to you, the land of Egypt is open before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. They can live in the land of Goshen. If you know of any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Joseph then brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? Jacob said to Pharaoh, 
My pilgrimage has lasted 130 years. My years have been few and hard, and they have not reached the years of my ancestors during their pilgrimages. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and departed from Pharaoh's presence. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers in the land of Egypt and gave them property in the part of the land, the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's family with food for their dependents. But there was no food in the entire region, for the famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan were exhausted by the famine. Joseph collected all the silver to be found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain they, had, they were purchasing, and he brought the silver to Pharaoh's palace. When the silver from the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan was gone, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die here in front of you? The silver is gone. But Joseph said, Give me your livestock since the silver is gone. I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and gave, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their flocks of sheep, cattle, and the donkeys. That year he provided them with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came the next year and said to him, We cannot hide from our Lord that the silver is gone and that all of our livestock belongs to our Lord. There is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we die here in front of you, both us and our land? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. Then we, will, with our land, will become Pharaoh's slaves. Give us seed so that we can live and not die so that the land won't become desolate. And this way, Joseph acquired all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh, because every Egyptian sold his field since the famine was so severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph made the people servants from one end of Egypt to another. The only land he did not acquire belonged to the priests, for they had an allowance from Pharaoh. They ate from their allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, understand today that I have acquired you and your land for Pharaoh. Here is seed for you. Sow it in the land. At harvest, you are to give a fifth of it to Pharaoh, and four-fifths will be yours as seed for the field and as and as You have saved our lives, they said. We have found favor with our Lord and will be Pharaoh's slaves. So Joseph made it a law, still in effect today in the land of Egypt, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. Only the priest's land does not belong to Pharaoh. Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property in it and became fruitful and very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, and his lifespan was 147 years. When the time approached for him to die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor with you, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. 
Do not bury me in Egypt. When I rest with my ancestors, carry me away from Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Joseph answered, I will do what you have asked. And Jacob said, swear to me. So Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed in thanks at the head of his bed. Genesis chapter 46 and 47. Now turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. We're going to deal this morning with the largest part of this chapter. And uh, if you take out your sermon notes, you'll notice it's a whole sheet of paper. And that's because... I couldn't figure out how to do this any other way than give you a whole sheet of paper, okay? And um, you'll notice as you look at that sheet of paper that the outline starting in Roman numeral one, you see it's not as dark as what's below it. And that's because that's the outline from last week, and we're just picking up that outline that we started last week with Roman numeral, Roman numeral number two, point B, point B. That's where we're picking up here this morning. And you'll also see that this chart that I've made fits under point C. And uh, that's, goes, that's the big part of our passage today. And uh, what I wanted you to realize even if you don't become familiar with it, you can at least follow in this table, is that there are various kings that are mentioned here. They're all called either the king of the north or the king of the south, but there are a bunch of different individuals who are king of the north and king of the south, and so we have that in this sheet that you have there in your uh, sermon notes. So, uh, you can follow along and see who is being spoken of verse by verse. The, uh, you'll notice the first numbers are in the left-hand column. And then you can look and you see the first heading is about the Grecian Empire under its first ruler. And then about a quarter down that chart, you'll see the labels King of the South, Kings of the South, and Kings of the North. Okay, so you can just follow along as we get to those particular portions in our message this morning. Now, last week we began to look at chapter 11, and we saw that this chapter contains the message concerning the Gentile kingdoms. Particularly last week we saw the message concerning the kingdom of Persia. So in these first two verses verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11, we saw that it referred to five Persian kings, the first being Cyrus the Great and the last being Xerxes. Now, the Xerxes is a Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. We also took some time to look at the connections that these kings had to the Bible and the biblical record. At the conclusion of that message, we considered the prophetic importance of Cyrus the Great. We looked at Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, 
and look at the prophecies given about Cyrus in two chapters. We saw that those two chapters prophesied the name of Cyrus, his power, and God's purpose for him. And that prophecy was given at least 100 years before Cyrus was even born. We also saw, most importantly, that the reason God gave this prophecy that we looked at last week in Isaiah was twofold. God gave that prophecy about Cyrus so that Cyrus, when he was born and would become the ruler of the Persian Empire, so that Cyrus would know and acknowledge that the Lord God of Israel is the only God and had done all of this for him, that he was in his position as king of Persia because God cared for him and made a way for him to be the king of Persia and that God was doing that so that he would take care of God's chosen people, the children of Israel. We also saw that the purpose for God giving this prophecy about Cyrus was so that Israel would know that the Lord God is the only God. You remember they had that big section in chapter 44 that talked about this person who was making idols. Talked about a blacksmith, talked about a carpenter who would make idols. One of the big problems Israel had was their idolatry. They thought, well, here's our God, but there's these other gods. And God said, I'm giving prophecy. I'm predicting this man, Cyrus, who's going to do these things for you a hundred years before he's born so that when he comes and he takes power, you will know I am the only God. So that's what we looked at last week. This week, in our passage, we pick up in verse 3, chapter 11, verse 3, and we're going to go through verse 20. There's really two points to this message, just two points. Number one, uh, well, it's, I think it's letter D in your notes, it's Alexander the Great, and secondly, the kings of the north and the kings of the south. They take up most of the space here this morning. And uh, just keep in mind that these events that we're going to look at in chapter 11, verses 3 through 20, these events fit into Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Okay, everything that we see happening here fits into the time allotted in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Okay, and everything that we're going to look at today fits into the time of that verse. And so as we read this, this all of this is going to be history to us, but all of it is prophecy's lifetime. Daniel dies and he'll move off the scene, and then these things start to unfold in front of Daniel. And so for Daniel, this is all future. And really what is happening here, if we keep God's plan in mind, what is happening here? Is God is preparing the Jews for the first coming of the Messiah. He's preparing them for when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes. Christ will come and he will offer the Jews the kingdom, the kingdom 
Remember, what's the theme of the book of Daniel? The most high rules and rules over what? The kingdom of men. Rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to everyone. And he had given it to Israel and Israel disobeyed. And then he gives it to a number of the Gentile rulers, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, Cyrus, Persians, Alexander, the Greek Empire. There's four Gentile kingdoms. And then he is preparing to give it back to Israel when their Messiah comes, and the Messiah will be God's ultimate earthly ruler. This passage is preparing us for that. So here, let's take a look at verses 3 and 4, Alexander the Great. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according, nor according to his dominion, which with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. So notice in verse 3 that this mighty king that is spoken of here follows the Persian Empire. In verse 2, if you glance back up to the bottom of verse 2, the end of verse 2, you see that the Persian Empire stirs up Greece. So this is a going to be a ruler of Greece that the Persians stirred up. Now, this mighty king that we see here in verse 3 actually defeats Artaxerxes V, October 1st, 331 B.C., in the Battle of Golgamela. Okay, he defeats, this mighty king defeats the Persians, the Persians, in 331 B.C. Also notice in verse 3 that this mighty king has a vast empire, Great dominion. He has a vast empire. Basically, this empire will run from Greece down to Egypt, then east all to India. It's a huge empire. It's larger than any empire so far that we've seen in the book of Daniel. As we come to verse 4, we see that at the peak of his power, this mighty king dies, and his empire is divided into four parts. Now, this isn't new information. This is old information, because we saw it in chapter 8, verse 22, where you had the ram and the goat, and the goat had this big horn that came out of his head, and the horn is broken, and there's four other horns that come up. This is the same idea that we find here. But notice verse 4 tells us that his kingdom doesn't go to his family. It says, but not among his posterity. Well, this is talking about Alexander the Great. We know that both of his sons were murdered. They didn't become rulers in his place. Furthermore, we see that this kingdom that he has isn't going to last. It's going to be broken up. And it's never 
what's broken up and becomes parts of it are never as big and as powerful as the kingdom under this mighty king. And so four of the become the rulers. And so we see in verses three through four that this mighty king is none other than Alexander the Great, who was born in 356 B.C., comes to the throne of Greece and Macedonia in 336 B.C. at the age of 20. 20 years old, his father Philip dies, and he becomes king. And he lives until June 10th or 11th, 323 B.C. When he dies, he has conquered the entire Middle East. And if you do the math, it only took him about 10 years to do it. 20-year-old, takes 10 years, dies about 30 years old, and by that time, he has conquered the entire Middle East. He is a great king, a great leader. But we also know that his kingdom, after he dies, is divided. It's divided among his generals and not his sons. And it's divided into four parts. And you got to kind of keep these four parts in mind. Part one is Greece, is Greece. Part two is Asia Minor, what today we would call Turkey. Part three is Syria, Babylon, if we think Iraq, modern-day Syria, that area, that's part three. And part four is Egypt. Part four is Egypt. In our passage today, when we go to verse five and beyond, we're talking about the last two parts, the parts that would be Syria and Iraq today and Egypt, okay? These are the two parts that we have interest in, or actually the biblical record has interest in this morning. So this great king, Alexander the Great, this is telling us that the second Gentile kingdom, Persia, is replaced by the third Gentile kingdom, the kingdom of Greece. And so the rest of this passage is about the, what we'll label the kingdom of Greece. Now, as we come to verses 5 through 20, these verses span the time from the death of Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes. That's from 323 B.C. to 163 B.C. And they inform us about the conflict that took place within the empire of Greece. And they tell us the background to the setting of the time right they're giving us information as to why the Jews thought certain ways, acted certain ways in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So look, let's look at this. I'm just going to try to do this and make no headings, just going by the verses. And uh, I'm going to try to make sense of it as we go. Let's look at verse also, the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Uh, the king of the south here is Ptolemy three, or excuse me, Ptolemy one. 
line right there about a quarter of the way down in that chart, and you'll see Ptolemy 1. Now, I'm not going to give you all the information I put in there. I gave you the chart, so I don't have to say all that information, okay? So Ptolemy the first is king of Egypt. He is the king of the south here. Now, let me just say, the reason the Bible doesn't say, this is Ptolemy 1, this is Ptolemy 2, this is Seleucids 1 and 2, the reason it doesn't use those is because it is focused on the position of king of the south, Syria. It's not so much interested in the individuals as it is these various parts of the kingdom and how they really, how they're going to fight against each other this whole time. So the king of the south is Ptolemy, spelled with a P, Ptolemy the first. Then in this verse, verse 5, it says one of his princes, that one of his princes is Seleucus the first. Okay, you see him on your chart. He's right there beside Ptolemy the first. Okay, he's right there beside him. Seleucus the first. Now he's one of the princes. He's one of the princes of Ptolemy. It then says in the verse, he shall gain power over him and have dominion. The he there is Seleucus the first, and the him is Ptolemy. So Ptolemy is the king of the south, but one of his princes, Seleucus, is actually going to gain dominance over him. Backstory. Okay, here's the backstory. Backstory is not your notes. You just have to listen to this. When Alexander's kingdom was divided, Ptolemy the first who we've seen is king of the south, king of Egypt. Seleucus the first was king in Babylon. He was king in Babylon. Well, there was a uh, conflict there, and he was defeated. Seleucus was defeated in Babylon by a man named Antagonus. Antagonus. And when that happened, Seleucus fled to Ptolemy the first in Egypt. And that's how he becomes one of his princes. But Antiochus is defeated in Babylon, and Seleucus goes back. And when Seleucus goes back, he becomes extremely powerful, taking Babylon, Syria, and almost the entire Middle East. And so his kingdom is greater than Ptolemy the first. And that's why it says, and he... So Lucas shall gain power over him, Ptolemy, and have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. It's bigger than Ptolemy's in Egypt. Verse 6. End of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor her authority shall stand, but, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. So again, this is some years later, some years after verse five, we have our record of verse six. The king of the south here is Ptolemy II. You can see that in your notes. In verse six, on verse six there in the left-hand column, 
start going to the right. Kiss the second. The daughter of the king of the south, her name is Bernice. Bernice, you see that there. Bernice, Bernice will be given by Ptolemy, his daughter. He's going to give her to Antiochus as his wife. This is how they sealed the agreement, right? We know this from ancient history that often kings, when they had treaties, one king would give uh, his daughter to one of the princes of another king as a seal of the treaty. And this is what happens here. They come to this agreement. But then we see the demise of the daughter of the king of the south. We see the demise of Bernice. We see her demise here in this verse. When Bernice was given to Antiochus, was married to a woman named Laodice. Uh, Laodice. And she was powerful and very influential. And Laodice murdered or had murdered Antiochus, her husband, and Bernice, his second wife, and their child. And she then becomes the viceroy, the co-regent over Syria, the kingdom of the north, until her son, so Lucas II comes to power. So there's a lot of things happening in here. That's verse 6. Now let's go to verse 7. Verse 7. But from the branch of her roots, one shall arise and his shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. The her here, see the her but from a branch of her, this is Bernice. This is Bernice that we just mentioned, daughter of the king of the south, who was queen, the king of the north. That's Bernice. And the branch here is in reference to Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III. Ptolemy III. You see that in your outline there. So verse 7. See right to the right of it, Ptolemy the third. And you can go on over and you see who the king of the north is at that time. So um, the phrase here in this verse, one shall rise in his place, indicates that Ptolemy the third would sit on the throne of his father. Ptolemy the third is going to avenge the murder of his sister Bernice. war will last six years and in this war the um, Ptolemy captures the capital of the northern kingdom the capital of Antioch Antioch you know where Antioch is Antioch of Syria you know where that's at that's where Paul and Barnabas ministered in the book of Acts so this is an ancient City here. Let's keep going. Verse 8. If I get sidetracked too much here, we'll never get done. Verse 8. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. He shall continue more years than the king of the north. So the he here in verse 8, and he shall carry, also carry, this is talking about Ptolemy the third, king of the south. And the king of the north refers to Seleucus 
the second. And what happens here, what is described here, is that Ptolemy the third, the gods of the Seleucids, the king of the north, the Seleucids, he takes them back to Egypt. Now, one of the things that is very, very simple, kingdom would invade another kingdom, and they would take their gods. That is symbolic to say we have power not over just you, but we have power over your gods. Your gods could not help you, could not prevent. In fact, we are taking them hostage. They are our hostages. They are our, they are our captives. And so Ptolemy takes their gods back to Egypt with them, the king of the north. Verse 9. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the south, but shall return to his land. Again, we're talking about Ptolemy III in the south and Seleucus II in the north. Now, some of our Bibles might read differently. The King James here says, so the king of the south shall come into his kingdom. Um, for a number of different reasons, the best way to take this is the way that it reads in the New King James, New American Standard, and, and so on. And this is expressing the fact that Seleucus, the king of the north, is totally powerless over Ptolemy the third king of the south. He's, he's totally powerless. Even muster a good attack against him. Verse 10. Notice in verse 10, we're going to have a switch of people here and there in your notes. Verse 10. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. So here at the beginning of the verse, it says, however, his, his sons, the his there is Seleucus II. The sons of name, the son of Seleucus II, the first one is Seleucus III. <laughs> Seleucus III. His other son is Antiochus III. Antiochus the third. This Antiochus, don't confuse him with Antiochus Epiphanes, two different guys. Right? So the sons of Seleucus II continue the war with the Ptolemies. It says here in the middle of the verse, one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. This refers to Antiochus III's military campaign to Phoenicia, which is the coastland, the land of Israel. He is going to start a military campaign coming out of Syria, over to the coast, down through Egypt. Verse 11. And the king of the south, remember that's Egypt, the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. So here we are. Here's the people that we're dealing with. The king of the south 
It's Ptolemy IV. You see that in your notes. Ptolemy IV. The king of the north is Antiochus III. They have a large battle. Huge armies involved. The Ptolemies, the king of the south, had 70,000 infantrymen, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 war elephants. That was their army. The king of the north had 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 war elephants. And so they fight in this battle, and this battle takes place in Israel. The battle actually ends in 217 B.C., 217 B.C., with the defeat of the king of the north at uh, Raphia. Raphia, which is the modern-day town of Rafa, Rafa, at the bottom of the Gaza Strip. This is where this battle was, and these two great armies came into conflict, and the king of the north won. The king of the south was defeated. Excuse me, the king of the north was defeated. The king of the south won. Verse 12. When he was taken away, when he has taken away the mall, cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. This is talking about the pride of the north, the king of the south, the pride that he would have over his victory over the king of the north. It's reported that he killed 17,000 soldiers. 17,000 soldiers. But we see here when it says, but he will not prevail, it means that this victory will be short-lived. Verse 13. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former. So the king of the north, that's in Syria, is going to bring an army bigger than before. And shall certainly if some years with army and much equipment. This verse here introduces to us a shift of power. Up to this point, the king of the north and the king of the south have been going at each other, but the king of the south, the Ptolemies, have really come out ahead. They've come out and been more and more dominant. All of that is going to change now. The king of the north is now going to be dominant. The Seleucids out of Syria are the ones who are going to have control. And here's what we know. In about 202, I think it's raining. Hear that? In about 202 BC, Antiochus III invades the territories of the king of the south. This invasion seems to have been timed with the death of Ptolemy IV and the installation of Ptolemy V as the new king over Egypt. Ptolemy V was only, he was four to six years old at this time. And anytime there's a transition between one king and the kingdom, and so Antiochus III 
king of the north, takes advantage of this weakness in the kingdom of the south. And so he starts to invade the territories of the kingdom of the south in 202 B.C. And in 201 B.C., he takes back the fortress in Gaza. He takes it back. He takes it back into possession. Verse 14. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt the vision, but they shall fall. When it says violent men of your people, this is talking about Jews, the people of Daniel, your people, Daniel, your people are going to rise up. So these are Jews who are violent men who have rebelled against uh, the king of, uh, or, or the, yeah, they rebelled against the king of the south. They are Jews who have sided with the king of the north in Titus the third. And when it says they shall fall, is talking about what happened to them. These people who sided with Antiochus, king of the north, these Jewish rebels who went with the king of the north, a general from Egypt, Scopus is his name, even though he's defeated, he comes out, he goes to Israel, and he kills those rebels. That was his only purpose. To kill those rebels, and then he goes back to Egypt. So they fell. See how all this prophecy, this is all prophecy. None of this has happened in Daniel's life. All of this is being described, and it lines up exactly with history. Verse 15. Verse 15. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city. His choice troops shall have no strength to resist. Now, this verse is referring to a battle that takes place in Sidon. You know, Sidon's up in the Lebanon area. It's north of Israel. It's right on the coast. It's really important. You remember Tyre and Sidon? Tyre and Sidon. This is Sidon. That's Sidon on the coast, way up north. And so this is referring to a battle that takes place there where Antiochus III has defeated the Egyptian general Scopus they finally breaking the power of Ptolemy the fifth now it's interesting there's a between the verses here between verses 14 and 15 there's something interesting that happens that we know from history in 199 BC Scopus after he's defeated in verse 14 he has the ability to raise an army for Ptolemy, and he invades Judah. He engages the king of the north at the Battle of Panium. This is Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi goes by the name Banus now, but in the ancient world, it was also called Panus. Panis, okay? You remember Caesarea Philippi. This is the battle that takes place between verses 14 and verses 15. And you remember, you remember Caesarea Philippi, right, from the New Testament? What happened there? Jesus asked a question. 
He says, who do men say that I am? Okay, that leads to another question. Who do you say that I am? And somebody answered it. Who answered it? Peter. And what does Peter say? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Then, just down through the context a little bit more, this is where Jesus Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, standing in front of that big, big Hades, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This is the place where this battle takes place between verses 14 and 15. Okay, now let's go to verse 16. Verse 16. But he who comes after him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with and with the defeat of the Egyptians, with the defeat of the king of the south at Sidon, verse 15. Antiochus III has complete control over Phoenicia and the land of Israel. The land of Israel is mentioned here by the term the glorious land. The glorious land refers to the land of Israel. And so now the king of the north controls Israel. And this is going to set up the stage for king the fourth epiphanies. So in 198 BC, Antiochus III is going to punish the Jews who backed the king of the south. But when he comes to Jerusalem, he's not treated as a conqueror. He is treated as a deliverer. So the Jews were like, yes, Antiochus is here. He has delivered us. From the king of the south. And it will be a mere 23 years when the Jews will no longer say, Praise the Lord for Antiochus, our deliverer, a curse, Antiochus, our oppressor. 23 years is all it's going to take. And he shall also set his face to enter with strength. Enter with the strength of his whole kingdom, the upright ones with him. Thus he shall do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, and she shall not stand with him or be with him. So the king of the north here forces a peace treaty with the king of the south. Okay? He there, verse 17, and to seal the deal, to seal the treaty, Antiochus III, king of the north, is going to give his daughter, Cleopatra, to Ptolemy V, the king of the south. And she will be Ptolemy's wife. And Antiochus III, in doing this, intends for Cleopatra to ruin the Ptolemies. But that's not what happens. It says, she did not stand with him. That's her father, Antiochus III, or before him. And all of her support. 
All of this is predicted and all that happens. Verse 18, verse 18. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But rulers shall bring him the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So Antiochus, after defeating the Egyptians, the king of the south, turns his attention to the coastlands. Those areas around the Mediterranean Sea, coastal areas and islands. This happened. However, a Lucius, Cornelius, Scipio, Asiaticus, quite a name, came up against Antiochus III, king of the north, with a coalition of Romans and Greeks and defeated him at Thermopylae, not the Thermopylae of Persia and Greek history. I mean, it's the same place, but it's not the same battle, okay? Thermopylae is the same place, but it's not the same, uh, same battle. So the Romans are going to defeat Antiochus III, and this forces Antiochus to flee to Asia Minor, where they are again defeated at the Battle of Magnesia near Smyrna, modern-day Turkey. You know, Smyrna, the Church of Smyrna, is mentioned in the Book of Revelation. It's right there on the coast, the west coast of Turkey. So Antiochus III, king of the north, is defeated there. And as a part of his defeat, the Romans forced Antiochus III to sign a treaty with harsh conditions. He had to surrender territory. He had to give up most of his military. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. After Antiochus is defeated by the Romans, he returns home where he's killed by an angry mob in 187 BC. Killed by an angry mob at home. After the death of Antiochus, an unnamed ruler comes to power. And in order to pay what is owed the Romans, this ruler and he is also killed. And that brings us to verse 20. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious land. Remember, the glorious land is a term for Israel land of Israel, shall impose taxes on the glorious land, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So the one who arises after Antiochus III, the one who comes in his place and imposes taxes on Israel, this is the son of Antiochus III. And Seleucus IV sends a tax collector named uh, Heliodorus into Israel to collect taxes so that Syria, the king of the north, could pay what he owes Rome. Seleucus IV did not reign long. After just a few years, it's believed that he was either assassinated by uh, Heliodorus or that Heliodorus had him assassinated at the North Epiphanes. We're going to talk about him next week, and he plays such a vital role in the terror of Israel. So this is uh, the history 
that leads up to the Jews uh, right before the Lord comes, right but just 150 years before Christ is born, roughly. So it's giving us background into all that, and it's showing us that God not only has a broad general plan for history and the world, but he has a specific plan. And he prophesied all these things that would happen before they happened. Remember, the Jews are to recognize from these prophecies that the one true and living God. That's what they're to recognize this. They are to recognize this and understand what God is saying. And they are to be looking for their Messiah because the kingdom was once theirs. And in their disobedience, God took the kingdom away from them and gave it to Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian. And then he gave it to Cyrus, who we prophesied about 100 years before Cyrus. Cyrus, the Persian. And after Cyrus, he gives it to Alexander, the great, the, the Greek. God prophesied all of this. This is all preparing for the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. The Jews are to see all of this and say, the Lord, he is God. He is planning and accomplishing all this so that when the Messiah comes, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is our Messiah. The kingdom is restored because God wants to give them back their kingdom. Wants to give them back their kingdom. That's his plan. That this is not just arbitrary what God is doing. It's not just big picture. God is prophesying. He prophesies all this international intrigue that is happening between the king of the south and the king of the north, between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, how they go back and forth. Even people who we know their, who their names are. I think there's over a dozen different kings that are mentioned here. And there's two different women that are mentioned here, Bernice and Cleopatra. They're not mentioned by name, but we know who they are from history. The Bible, with what we know will happen in history. Exactly. It's, it's, you just can't look at this and say, well, the Bible is kind of generally true. It has good principles. The Bible is exactly true. And remember, the theme of this book, the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he wants. God has a plan. God rules. We've seen that throughout the book of Daniel. Man can't thwart God's plan. Remember Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 4? I'm the one who did all this. God corrected him. Man can't thwart God's plan. Satan can't thwart God's plan. You remember in chapter 10 when the angel comes to Daniel and says, the, the moment you started to pray, God sent me to you, but I was delayed. And I was delayed by the prince of Persia. Talking about a demon. And I'm going to go back and i got to fight that prince of Persia and i got to fight the prince of Greece. 
warfare in the spiritual realm. Satan trying to thwart God's plan, but he can't. has a plan for the Jews. He wants to restore the kingdom to Israel. And this is the messianic kingdom. But we will know later as the millennial kingdom. This is all part of God's plan. And we also need to recognize that God doesn't just have a plan for Israel, but he also has a plan for us. We might ask the question, what is God's plan for me? Well, the answer to that question is focus on what we know from the word of God and let the remain unknown and work itself out. Do what you know to do is God's will for you. You know God's will for you is to make disciples, to tell people about the Lord and to teach them what the Lord commanded. You know that's what you ought to do. That is the will of God. So if you ask me, what is the will of God for me? Make disciples, tell people about Jesus and teach then what Jesus says and what he taught. That's what we know the will of God is for us, among other things. And we should be concerned with God's will. My uncle, who turned 80 here recently, has been in full time. He is still in ministry for 55 years. He's tried to retire a couple times. And, uh, and, and he just... He retired last year, and then the mission agency he works with had a transition in leadership, and the new president said, um, I wish you wouldn't retire right now. I want you to stick around and help me a little bit to get to know everybody, know how things work. So he's going to retire, and the plan is that he retires in a year. But uh, even at this point in his life, his greatest concern is that he doesn't waste what's left of his life. Here of us here who have a lot of time, normally speaking, left in our life. Some have decades. Some maybe not that long. But all of us here have some life left. And we need to understand God has a plan for us. He's given us that plan in his word. And we need to focus our lives, to spend our lives on doing God's will. Stand prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth of it and the certainty of it, the knowledge that it gives us of uh, what you want us to do, the knowledge that it gives us of what you have done, and the knowledge that it gives us about you, not just so we can be smart, not just so we can have information, but so that we can have a relationship with you, serving you, and being obedient to you. We're so thankful for this record that we've seen in the book of Daniel and how strong it is in showing us that you are the God who can predict the future and accomplish it. And we know the God of Daniel is our God. Years before, who predicted different generals in the kingdom of the Greeks 
even the all these Antiochus and Ptolemies and all these people, Bernice, even and Cleopatra, who predicted all these things hundreds of years in advance. That you're not just a god of history in a book and dusty ancient world, but you are our God today. And what you did then, you can do now. Help us to trust in you. Help us to rely on your will. Because you alone are God. And you have given us prophecy that we can look and see how it was predicted and see how it was fulfilled and know that you did all these things and that you can work today just like you did back then. Help us to believe that, help us to trust in you, and help us to serve you faithfully. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are dismissed.